All right, everyone, welcome to a very exciting for me and I hope for all of you too episode of Outside the Studio. This is Tessa, your host, and I have my special guest as usual. This is Abeja. She makes a regular appearance on the show. <laughs> Uh, so just a little bit of background on Anastasia. Uh, she is a nonfiction writer whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, Salon, Slate, Vice, and on PBS and NPR blogs. She has worked as a public health consultant, a news magazine publisher, and public policy researcher. And she's also an author. The book we're going to talk about today mostly is Eat Like a Pig, Run Like a Horse. If you're watching online, I'm holding it up. I love this name <laughs> for so many reasons. And I want to dive into this title and subtitle how food fights hijacked our health and the new science of exercise. Anastasia, thank you so much for being here. This conversation has been a long time coming and I'm so excited to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me here, Tessa. Yeah, for sure. So could we start with the title? I'd love to hear your um thoughts behind choosing this title? Is this meant to be literal? Is it meant to be metaphorical? Is it a combination of both? Um, well, the title actually probably has several different levels. The first one is the obvious one. And um, there are a couple words that are sort of missing. Um, I think maybe to make it more uh, eye-catching, we've sort of shortened it a bit, but it's really, if if you eat like a pig, then you better run like a horse. Ah, okay. <laughs> so those things are are linked. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the basic premise is that diet is far less important than exercise in our uh, overall health and especially our, our metabolic health. So that that is the first meaning of the title. The second meaning actually has to do with some of the way I go about um, exploring the impact of physical activity on the body. And um, for that, I looked at our uh, our fellow animals. And so there are numerous um, animal stories throughout the book. Uh, and so in end, two of the animals that we have the most likenesses to are actually pigs in that we like pigs are omnivores and our uh, digestive systems are super are really similar our, our um, metabolic systems as well um and so that you get to eat like a pig and then like horses we are actually some of the ch champion runners of the animal kingdom mm -hmm. um because we because we sweat, we're able to go for very long distances. So that's kind of the secondary level. Mm. And the third level is just, you know, do things to the max. <laughs> Enjoy your food and, you know, get out there and move your body. Yeah, I love this. Well, so for someone like me who has probably tried every single diet that you mentioned in this book, plus things that are not in this book, <laughs> I mean, since I was... I don't know, five food for me was a very um, contentious topic between my parents and I, and personally in my own body, it was always this very, I guess I would say scary kind of thing for me, food was. So I find this body of work, not only profound, but it's 
clearly heavily researched. You, you you cited so many sources in here, and obviously you've done your homework, and not to mention your own personal experience with multiple sclerosis. That's kind of a tongue twister. I'll just refer to it as MS. Um, And, you know, going through that whole journey and exercise, it seems to me like being one of those things that has really helped you to live this full life and kind of overcome MS. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this is kind of what I'm picking up as, as I go through the book. So will you tell me a little bit about this origin story, why you wrote this book? And, you know, I want to hear more about that from, from you. Um, Yeah, I'd love to. And even before I get into the, the uh, origins of the particular book, I just wanted to address several kind of threads you brought up in, in, in sort of getting into this. And the first one is that the, the war with your body, um, I, while I'm, I kind of had maybe through exercise made my peace with that pretty early on. I was a child of um, a mother who was constantly at war with her body. And and I talk about that in the book. She was overweight and she was always on diets. And because of that, she seemed to have sort of this hate relationship with food, which is kind of like trying to make everything not taste very good. Um, but she never exercised, and mm-hmm. so so she never really um, got to that that place in it. Um, and like you, I also f- sort of for quite a long time, I you know believed that food was really so important to well being. I I I came. My previous book is about processed food. I was a member of Slow Food, a leader in slow food, and I believed in um, making everything from scratch and you know not giving my kids uh, packaged foods. So so I also shared that. Um, but at the same time, I. Um, I, in my, during, in my mid twenties, I had a, uh, something that appeared like a stroke, um, for the first time, which was that, um, it sort of started out, um, with my hand going numb and then the entire, um, right side of my body went numb and became weak. I couldn't walk. Um, and that turned out to be, uh, the first um, episode in what was diagnosed within a, several years as being multiple sclerosis. Um, um, for a young person, getting that kind of diagnosis is pretty devastating. And at the time, um, there were there, we didn't really even have some of the therapies that we have now, like interferon-based therapy. And so my reaction was, yay, to flee. I just sort of covered my ears and I said, oh God, this is really scary thing is happening to me in my body. And I just went off. Um, I actually ended up uh, living in South America for several years. And um, after that, I started to get into um, a habit of everyday exercise. Um, But that really didn't uh, sort of stave off any of the MS attacks and progression. Um, so I had, yeah, I, cause I was, I was swimming, um, and I had several more attacks, one that sort of a similar s- severity than sort of some mi- more minor ones. And then I started running. Uh, that was about, uh, 2001, I think when I had my s- two, when I had my second child and strangely after that, 
I never had another MS flare up. And at first I was like, Oh, what's going on here? I talked about it with my neurologist. And he said, he mentioned to me that there was some new um, research that was finding that, that physical, regular physical activity was perhaps as protective as some of these therapies. Um, but I didn't really dare look at it closely until I put a solid now 30 years behind me of having MS with having um, no outward sign of it. I do have inward signs of it and I've have, you know, sort of lesions on my brain and so forth, but functionally um, I am the same as any, you know, a person without MS from the outside. And so that led me to say, okay, what is it? Is this, is it exercise? It has this really profound protective effect on my body. And um, that is why I did the, the exploration in the book. Yeah, thank you. I know there's so many uh, different subjects I want to touch on. I'm just going to mention a few because I don't want to forget they're so important. Um, and we started to kind of skirt around this idea of, well, I mean, it's in the subtitle of your book, the, how food fights hijacked our health, right? So uh, this diet culture and this um, idea that there's this one diet out there that's this quote unquote uh, a quick fix and it will give you the body of your dreams and, you know, so on and so forth. So the idea as um, not only like the diet being the thing, but food is medicine and you quote Hippocrates um, in the first uh, it's, I think it's in the third chapter, the fault isn't in our food, um, which I just, I keep going back to this chapter. I poured over it again because time and time again throughout my life, it sounds like similarly to you, I've thought of food as medicine. What am I putting in my body? What we eat is what we are, right? That maxim. So this, this quote by Hippocrates, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. I want to unpack this um, a little bit more. I want to hear in your words, what your thoughts are on this today, because it sounds to me like, and clearly throughout the book, exercise is really, if we were going to put things on a scale more important than what it is that we're eating. Um, and you could think about this, I guess I think about this, I think you say this somewhere in there, that simple calories in calories out output really holds true in this conversation. Okay, so I said a lot of things, I kind of asked a question, but I'm just going to let you take it from there. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. And feel free to jump in, um, you know, if you and so so yeah, that um, like you again, I had, as I said before, I have had this idea that food was very important. Um, and then when you start to look at that um, scientifically in terms of what happens in the body when you eat something, um, you can you start to realize that that really nutrition has its limits. So what I'm saying in the book is not that you should. Um, you know, not meet your basic nutritional requirements. But what I am saying is that all of these special diets as you know, the keto, the paleo, the low carb, whatever, that those really don't, aren't going to benefit you that much. Um, and the reason why is that, you know, our body needs uh, food to, uh, you know, repair and make cells, makes all sorts of um, chemical messengers that are used um, for, you know, relaying different processes, and it needs uh, food for fuel. 
But once you get to that sort of, um, um, you know, baseline level, you can't really change anything in your cells by just adding more, um, you know, sort of materials for, for making stuff or fuel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what does actually change what goes on in your cells is physical activity. And the reason for that is that because, um, you know, all cells have, have mitochondria, which is creates the energy that we, they use to do all sorts of stuff. And when the mitochondria are basically put to work, when they are worked out, um, there are all these incredible uh, downstream impacts of that, which is the creation of actual new molecules that have an effect on not only that cell, but other parts of the body. Um, things like um, relieving stress, um, in reducing uh, inflammation, and um, even relieving pain. And so, so what actually happens is that exercise creates new molecules that then are in your body. And after your your bout, you know, your your run or you know your swim or whatever, those molecules persist and they continue to address those issues of you know um, stress and pain and inflammation. Um, so the reason that I would now say that uh, exercise that let food be thy medicine is wrong is that exercise actually is the thing that creates these sort of um, medicinal properties. And and one sort of interesting illustration of that is that uh, when pharmaceutical companies, for example, are looking for new medicines, those medicines often act on the same pathways that exercise does. They don't go, you know, through the digestive process and, and um, you know, the process that by which cells are taking molecules in. They actually act on those same pathways. Mm, interesting. So I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier about you were swimming when you were um, regularly. That wasn't like you started swimming and then developed MS. Swimming, it sounds like, has been part of your life for a while. Mm-hmm. And then... The shift, it sounds like with the attack subsiding was when you started to run. Did you find in your research, have you found anything that explains that phenomenon? Why the running? I think I, I, well, um, there are a couple things. So um, one of the, I was talking just, you know, in the previous question about these different sorts of molecules and and cellular processes that um, are created by exercise. And I can go over a few of those, but um, what an important aspect of running is really two things. One is it is an incredible um, aerobic exercise. It gets your heart rate way up there. And I'm not sure if I was really getting it that high as a swimmer. Mm. Um, so I definitely get to that point of being, you know, um, I, I quickly get so, so that my, my, I, my breathing increase, I don't want to say out of breath because once you run quite a bit, then you tend not to get out of breath. And the other important thing, so that when you get out of breath, that is indicates that your, um, everything has been vastly speeded up. Your uh, circulation is speeding up your and and by four to i think it's by four to 
a factor of four to eight. Your metabolism, uh, your metabolism of glucose, which is the fuel for your cells, immediately speeds up by by a factor of fifty. So everything is just sort of rushing around in your body, and that in and of itself, if you think about it, <clears throat> say for example, if you've just eaten a meal, or if you have like a high level of uh, you know, glucose in your blood, that means that that's all going to get used up and, and get to a, a healthier level. The second thing that happens when uh, you run is you get hot. Mm -hmm. And that actually has an incredibly, um, that is incredibly valuable in terms of inflammation, because when you get hot, again, your body creates a, different kinds of molecules and opens up different pathways to get rid of the heat or to address the damage that heat causes. And so those pathways and those molecules, again, persist and they help um, reduce inflammation of all types might be inflammation from the heat stress of exercise, or it might be inflammation from, let's say, you know, whatever um, pro process MS is acting on. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think that, that the running is, was better than the swimming. Mm -hmm. Interesting that I'm going to fast forward. I'm kind of skipping around in my notes. I said I had sure. like several topics, but you brought up the, um, the heating of the body and running. So, you know, the body sweating. Um, and later on in the book, you talk about um, it, the belief that some exercises are detri detrimental to MS. In particular, you refer to um, like Bikram style yoga, which is that heated yoga. I think it's generally between 102, 105 degrees Fahrenheit in a room um, or something like sitting in a sauna. So do you think it's, so that to me is interesting what you're, what I hear you saying about running versus then I think, well, could I just go sit in a sauna and force myself to sweat? Now, granted, I don't have MS, but I'm just wondering about the different chemical reactions within the body and why something like sitting in a sauna would cause a, a, an attack versus something like running where you're aerobically moving your body. It's more active. It's not necessarily passive. Bikram yoga isn't passive to be clear, but I guess no, if I compare yeah. it to sauna, it could, sauna could be considered passive sweating and heat. Well, that's, those are, those are all really interesting questions and not ones I um, uh, addressed directly in the book, but I love to speculate about stuff. So I'm going to dive right on in there. Um, and one thing I will say is that those are extremely hot environments. And so it, that there may be an additional impact, although I will go out running, you know, when it's really hot, I am careful, you know, to not overdo it. Um, but I do wonder, and I don't know um, at the physiological level if this is right or not, but I'm guessing, especially the difference between a sauna and running is a sauna, in a sauna, the heat is for external and your body is basically trying to regulate it. When you are running, that heat is internal. Mm -hmm. It's created within your cells. And in fact, it's really interesting. I had um, read recently um, some sort of study where they were actually physically measuring the temperature around in within cells. And they found that um, during um, uh, muscle cells during physical activity, they had a, they spiked up to some insanely high temperatures, like the sorts of temperatures that could cook you. 
but then they're regulated down. So, so I think that that, that may be the difference is where that heat originates. Mm, so the heat source is important. Interesting. Okay, cool. Thank you. I was like, wait, no, how is this true? How can, and I know it's so much more complex and nuanced. Definitely. This is not a black and white conversation. Um, and I love that you're willing to speculate on things like this because I, it's, it's so fascinating to me. Okay. So let's go back to chapter three. I want to, um, I, I just actually want to add one little yeah, yeah, thing. Um, um, in the book, I talk about these things called heat shock proteins and they're two different types. They're types that are kind of constitutional that are, you just create at baseline and then there are com- kinds that are produced in response to stress. So one of the things ca- that can also happen, which is interesting is if you're like in a regularly in a hotter um, temperature, then you're going to have sort of a higher baseline. Uh-huh. And when, and one of the other interesting things I had found was that um, MS varies with your distance from the equator. Um, and, and it may be that heat shock proteins also vary a bit because they have found, they haven't found done this research in humans, but they've done some veterinary research and they found that large mammals that live on the equator have higher baseline levels of these special proteins than the ones that live like say up in Boston or San Francisco. And this is referred to as heat shock colloquially. They're, they're called heat. They're called heat shock proteins. They're shock. so they're, they're they're these these um, proteins that your body produces in response to any kind of like a, a stress that could damage the protein. And but the, a very frequent stress is heat, as I said, and and you can he- get um, overheating through through exercise. So do you think uh, you have the experience of living closer to the equator in, in a country like Ecuador? Was it also Colombia? You lived there for yeah, a while? I, I, I've been, I spent time in Colombia, but not too long. And so I wonder about the acclimation of the body to climates like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that they it's sort of one of the, the things is that it tends to I don't know over time if you moved permanently to a, a a place that was close to the equator, but there is, of course, the impact of, you know, your childhood and previous years. So I think that it, if, if there were that kind of change, it would have to be sort of a very long-term one. Mm, okay. Okay. So let's talk about sedentary lives. This is a I mean, we're talking about it already, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the need for exercise, the importance of exercise. Um, but you really dive into it when, when you're, um, I think it's a friend of yours that works in a lab, one of the biggest labs, is it called Jax? Mm -hmm. Um, and she's studying, um, mice and there's some, there's something in the book where she says something along the lines of, if I were to put one of those little um, hamster wheels in a mice cage, a mouse would just eventually go towards it naturally and start to run on it. Um, and what was my point with that? I I highlighted something in there. And so I'm going to stop there let you respond to that while I find this quote. (laughs) Well, I might, I'm kind of guessing, um, that the story that you're citing is actually, um, a, uh, uh, a scientist in the Netherlands who did a study. Um, what happens is that uh, generally mice are not, laboratory mice are not provided with any uh, means of exercise. They're kept in these little small uh, cages, which are called shoebox cages, um, literally look like shoeboxes. 
And occasionally when you do said what are called exercise protocol studies with exercise, they would provide a wheel and they would notice that, hey, the mice seem to like the wheel. They get on the wheel and just run and run randomly as, as will rats. Um, however, scientists sort of speculated they, 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 they assumed that that was because they were stressed and nervous mm -hmm. and that that was not their natural inclination. So um, this scientist, uh, um, uh, Johanna Meyer, what she decided that she would find out if wild um, animals also like to run on wheels. And she, what, so she did this really home, homespun experiment. She installed a running wheel in the back of her garden and then a, a bunch of cameras that were light active, uh, movement activated. And so eventually what happened is I think over time, you know, the first few nights, nothing happened. And then the kind of animals kind of checked it out. And then eventually she found that wild uh, mice were coming and just running in the wheel because they wanted to run. Mm. Um, so that kind of disproved this idea that, that uh, mice will run because they're stressed. And um, mice will run either, if they have access to a wheel or are in the wild, they will cover between, it sort of um, varies in the estimates, but I'd say from four to, to eight miles a day, just running, they're in constant motion. And I, I'm guessing that the reason you may have brought that up is that I make that point because our, a body, an animal body is meant to be in motion. It evolved to be in motion. It evolved to be doing stuff. Um, you know, for a big part of its day and doing physical stuff. And um, because of that, the, our good health is really intertwined with that process of, of being active. And when we are inactive, when we are sedentary, that is incredibly damaging. Yeah. Yes. And you're right. That's the point I was looking to make. And I just kind of highlighted here, um, that oh gosh now I lost it again I have so many bookmarks in this book it's like oh here it is new research shows the damaging effects of sedentarism sitting or lying for long periods of time it is slowly being acknowledged as much as or even more of a risk factor as poor diet and obesity and illness insufficient physical activity is highly correlated with diabetes and then you go on to talk about diabetes but I think that you know we're highlighting the point that physical activity is really important as it relates to the, the, the mice um, and their level of activity. What I thought was really interesting is when you mentioned their low caloric needs, when they're running at that level, let's say four to eight miles is what they would naturally do in the wild. Um, but their low caloric needs is like, what did you say? The equivalent of one peanut? Yeah. Yeah. So that to me is interesting. And I know that we're genetically different than mice, but it's kind of similar, not maybe not as similar as pigs and horses genetically, but how, when we're, when we're thinking about, um, I mean, our metabolic, um, processing as it compares to our activity output, that fascinates me. And so I really think it's interesting that mice have such a low caloric need and they have such a high volume of metabolic output. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that is true. And I'm, I, I don't know the reason for that at the metabolic level. I can also say, however, that um, other, another animal that I cover in the book, uh, bats, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's, that's, 
they have, um, I wouldn't say they have a low caloric need, but they have an incredible um, volume of output, which is that bats, as it turns out, depending on, sorry, the, the uh, species of bats may fly up to um, 50 or 100 miles a night. And wow. they're, they're, they're usually eating the whole time because that's what they do when they're flying, but it's still an, it's an incredible, it's an insane um, sort of output. And they are only topped by, and this wasn't an animal covered in the book, but I know about it, birds. Birds have a very, they have a different met, um, metabolism than we do, but birds can, um, you know, I think there's, there's this bird that crosses the, you know, the Atlantic Ocean as part of its migration without eating for, I think it's nine days, eating or drinking for nine days. Yeah. Well, so, so the question I have around this particular topic, I think is how do we decide? I feel like for me at least, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this in your own body and experience. There's kind of a fine line for me and my body about how much exercise is enough. Like it's sufficient. That's my baseline. And how much is too much and causes stress on joints. Uh, like in particular, I struggle with crepitus in my knees, which is kind of like an early onset type of arthritis. So they're, they're really crunchy. It sounds like rice crispy treats in my knees. Um, and that. I, th I started to notice that after my second marathon and right now I'm training for my third because I refuse to let that be the thing that makes me <laughs> sedentary. <laughs> um, so I, I believe you, is it about four miles a day that you run as like yeah. a baseline? How did you come up with the, the number four? Um, I actually even ran, uh, fewer miles, um, or in, at earlier points in my life, and I, I increased it a little bit. But and so I think that generally the sweet spot for a run is a couple miles. Um, and, and that's, and, and, uh, you know, the many experts have said it's, it's enough to get most of the benefits of physical activity and sort of everything above that is, is gravy. Um, so I, I have chosen for not for any particular health needs, but it's sort of like what I like. Mm -hmm. I do, I do find that even, um, and I haven't ever really done the kind of mileage that you are probably doing if you're training for uh, marathons, but I do find that my energy level and my sense of well-being and my my mood, um, that to me seems to just increase with the, the actual amount of exercise. So um, I do, and as you've noticed, there can be stresses on the body as well. And I do think that uh, as particularly people who are doing things like marathons or ultra marathons, you have to be super careful because once you get to that um, level of exertion, yes, you are going to um, possibly deplete, you know, stores of things that shouldn't be depleted or have some sort of injury that can be, um, you know, really rather serious. So, so you have to really be attuned to any signs of stress and then modify based on that. But, um, and also, I know knees, those are, that's a bummer. Those kind yeah. of, <laughs> I I have to, I have to say I haven't had any serious injuries, but I I have had a couple minor ones, and I at one point I went and I I said okay, let's see. I bet athletes athletes always they they're always working out. I wonder if they ever get you know injured. And then so I read this whole um, 
research paper about how athletes just go through pain and they just did, like go through their injuries. And I was like, okay, I can do that too. And I, so I just sort of, I modify the try not to make sure they make the injury worse, but I just keep going through it. And I actually, that's worked out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a conversation, a hot topic in our home. My partner is a for my semi-professional soccer player and he still plays soccer on average about four to five times a week. And he always not laughs at me in a mean way, but just kind of jokes with me about how, you know, I'll start complaining about pain in my knees or my hips or my low back or something. And he's like, Oh, you just have no idea. He was getting injections, cortisone injections when he was like 18. He had multiple surgeries on his knees. So he definitely is um, the poster child for exercising through the pain. <laughs> yeah. On that note, it's similar thread. I think it's really interesting. And this isn't, I haven't like scientifically sat down and proved this theory, but it feels to me like because of the result, because of the amount of physical activity I do, and I don't know if this is, I'm highly pontificating here. So help me out with this. I'm curious to see what you think. Um, the, the level of metabolic output or the level of activity versus um, if I were just to do a straight calculation of how many calories I consume per day versus how many calories I burn, it seems to me like I some days, maybe more often than not, will eat more than I'm burning because I'm always hungry. And I often joke with my partner that I eat more than he does. I eat kind of like a football player, like a linebacker. <laughs> I don't really, I, I don't really feel like I'm gaining weight per se. Um, but I think it's interesting what you're talking about here. It's on page um, 64 as it relates to this topic. And I just want to read a little bit of this mm -hmm. paragraph um, again, it's not our food that's making us sick, but the lack of something endurance athletes have in spades, daily metabolic workouts in which the, the body must gear up to supply energy at a very high rate. Aerobic exercise shifts the body from its sedentary holding pattern in which its two fuels, glucose and fatty acid acids, enter into cells in their proportion in the bloodstream to full steam ahead operations with a circulation of up to four times faster in non-athletes and a calorie burn rate. This is the part that I'm like, wait, now what? And a calorie burn rate that is four to eight times faster than sitting. So do we as endurance athletes at a certain level start to burn more just just by exercising more is this making sense <laughs> yes yeah no i you're i i mean where i thought you were going with this question which I, actually i think is where you're going is um after a bout of exercise or dur and during that exercise of course your metabolism increases at this very high level but then it continues at a higher level than baseline for uh you know throughout the day and gradually returns. So if you are exercising strenuously every day, you are basically kind of have boosted up your metabolism, you know, to a higher burn rate. Now, um, yes, your body will also make some adjustments. But you know, I, I think that um, in general, what you are finding is true. Yeah, you have a high metabolism because you're, you're and, and in, in fact, there's another sort of sign of that my, um, my husband who actually didn't hadn't ever run until very recently had just started running and since we live in 
<clears throat> on the in on the east coast we, and we have a winter in and my husband is cuban he's always complains bitterly about the cold and this year i've been like what Jorge, what's going on you're not complaining about the cold he was saying to me he was hot and what is turned is true is that he is you know he started running um you know a fair amount every day and that not only does it increase your metabolism but it increases your temp your basal your your sense of of warmth and temperature mm -hmm. and so he has continued to be warmer throughout the day just also which is a sign that it's kind of burning calories at a higher rate mm, yeah that's that's a benefit i enjoy as well <laughs> <laughs> because it's no fun to be cold all the time. So I'd like to hear if you would indulge me a little bit about kind of like your daily routine in terms of you like me have gone through this kind of diet mentality. Now it, it seems like you're on the other end of it where you can sit back at a dinner party and observe, okay, that couple is swearing yeah. by their veganism. That couple is swearing by their ketoism. This couple is doing their paleo and you get to enjoy or you allow yourself to enjoy, it does seem like a choice. Um, you know, things that we may consider bad for us, like processed foods once in a while, cheese, wine, chocolate, you know, things of that nature. So I'd love to hear about what your your daily food intake looks like, if you would, wouldn't mind. Sure, sure. Well, check to all of the above. Um, I definitely, I don't worry about eating whatever kind of foods i do watch my calories only because i'm some i kind of i like the way i look and feel at a certain weight range but it's not so much for health but for that for that reason um and so so i i do also i love vegetables so that makes it easy and and i will say one thing um it definitely is uh best to avoid sugary a lot of drinking a lot of sugary beverages including of course soda and juices and yes it is good to eat a lot of vegetables so those things are you know i can as far as nutrition goes i think are are, are pluses um but so food wise like you know i often have two breakfasts i have a but either one one might be um, before i run i'll have some nuts and dried fruit and then after I run, I might have um, a fried egg and toast. <laughs> so, and then, you know, I, I'll eat some salad, but then I'll eat some other stuff that is um, like yesterday. I had two slices of pizza um, for dinner and I had, um, I ate a piece of, oh, what is it? Pecan pie in the afternoon with tea. I just, I, I really don't worry. I do, I tend to um, enjoy some candy and stuff from time to time. So I just tend not to worry about about things it, as long as I know I'm exercising and, and doing stuff. I eat what I want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's so refreshing. Do you feel like you've graduated to a point in your life where you're like, <laughs> okay, have yeah. I figured this out yet? You know, can I, can I relax into this a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I do. Work, I mean, every now and then there are, the, well, I should say I, not every now and then, like pretty regularly, there are tons of studies out there saying this is bad for you. That is bad for you. And I just yeah. really just go, mm, don't worry, don't worry. Because I, I think the bigger picture is, is this, Tessa, you've got, um, and, and, and actually it was really interesting because um, right when my book came out, this study came out that was kind of widely misquoted by the media saying that it's not true that you can forget about 
diet I, th that you can forget about that diet if you exercise. Mm -hmm. When I, I actually went and looked at that study and what that study that came out of Australia, what it showed was that, yes, it's, it's true that if you have a very bad diet, it is slightly worse for you um, it, than if you have a good diet if you exercise. But the difference between um, exercising and not exercising was the biggest um, improvement in people. This was a, a mortality study in their longevity and their lifespans. Um, and so what the key, and that was, I think, on a scale of anywhere from two to five times greater. So the, so the change that you can um, affect in your life by improving, by exercising is going to be, um, you know, by factor of two to five times more than the change that you can um, make by, by eating the, whatever the best diet in the world is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. So I kind of want to, I, I would like you to, if you could expound upon why we should, now I feel like this is probably it might feel like common sense for a lot of people listening, but I'd still like to hear in your research what you found about um, why it's so important to stay away from sugary drinks like soda or juice. Okay. I'm not, the only reason is just that this simply, it's, you know, it's such an easy way to consume a lot of calories. And yes, as we said, a calorie is a calorie. Um, but it's a very, if it's very easy to take in a lot of them, then you will gain weight and you probably, so overall, um, one thing I, I want to talk about is health at every, every size. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the interesting things, and I, I, you know, I don't have my book in front of me, but there's the sort of these, uh, two key tables, which, um, show, uh, people's, uh, longevity in overall longevity and cardiovascular longevity for fit versus unfit in different BMI categories. And the most important thing is that the fit people in all categories had better longevity. And sometimes the difference between the longevity for somebody who was in different BMI categories, but fit was, was not that great. And just in case BMI is an unknown term to us, body mass index. Sorry, what exactly yeah. does that mean when we say BMI? Uh, uh, so BMI is a term that um, takes into account your height and your weight and, can, and uh, creates this factor to estimate um, how fat you are. Um, so it's going to become, and, and it can be um, conf confounded or made complicated by things like if you have like big muscles, so they one of the things that's interesting is it's not universally accepted. And even in um, the military, which was the topic of my first book, um, they don't tend to rely on BMI as much as neck and waist measurements, because that gives a better sense of how much excess fat you have. Um, but yes, if you have uh, a lot of excess weight and you don't exercise, no, you are going to be unhealthy. But if you are normal weight and you don't exercise, you will also be unhealthy eventually. It's just that the process may be speeded up with the extra weight. Yeah. I think that I wonder if it's this chart you're referring to on page 126, the cardiovascular disease mortality versus yes. all cause mortality, which I can. Yeah. 
Just yeah, so exactly. So um, if you look at the, the light colored bars are the people who are unfit and the dark colored bars are the people who are fit. And mm -hmm. as you can see, the mortality for everybody, for any um, BMI category, whether that's so-called normal weight or overweight, which is which um, there's a lot of uh, debate about whether that's okay or not. And then um, what they may call the obese category, which I think is above 30 BMI, the fit category for any BMI category is always has, um, you know, a lower mortality rate than the unfit category. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Okay, so which is to say fit at any so, so fit at every size is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, gosh, there's this is such a heady topic. So I appreciate you diving into all of my very detailed questions. And um, hopefully this is helpful for people who are thinking about what they're daily exercise regime looks like as compared to nutritional intake and, and, and spark some inspiration. That's my hope anyways. Anastasia, I'm, I'm curious, you know, if there's anything, any like message that you hope gets through aside from what we've already said or any takeaway that you hope people leave this conversation with. Absolutely. And it kind of stems from what we were just talking about, which is, um, you know, stop worrying about what you eat so much focus on how much you move and um you know try and kind of reverse your priorities in the sense of um we all spend a lot of time like um planning food especially if you're following a special diet planning meals shopping preparing food um try and take if you're if you're uh, your life has um, limited time as most of ours does try and take some of that time you're spending on food and put it into moving around plan a exercise diet the way you might plan um, a food diet say am i getting uh, and make sort of as the centerpiece of that, a big um, meal of aerobic exercise where your heart rate gets up for at least 20 minutes a day, at least. Mm -hmm. And then add in little extras for you talked about my um, my daily routine. I thought we were going to talk about my exercise routine. Yeah, um, oh, I'd so love to hear that one. too. So Please. yeah, I do. I get yeah. up. I, I generally will um, run, you know, uh, sometimes I have to do three because I'm my life gets super complicated, but I like to do four. I lift uh, light weights and do stretches for 20 minutes. I do a lot of, I take breaks and do housework. I, so I work from home and those are, move, you know, all sorts of movement. In the evening, I take dance classes. I like to go for walks, um, bike from time to time. You know, I just try and keep active or be just, you know, on my feet. So, and, and I just think, so, you know, besides that centerpiece of the aerobic exercise, think about things that are going to, you know, help with stretching, help with balance, help with flexibility, just, you know, and it's always fun to do, um, you know, different, different types of activities that are um, stretching your, your body and, and connecting with nature. Mm, yeah, absolutely. A hundred a thousand percent agree with that dance classes in the evening. Is this something you go and do in a classroom setting? Yes, I do. I mean, obviously during the pandemic, I, I that part of my life had to drop off, but I, yeah, for uh, many years I did belly dance 
um, several, and now I'm doing some um, Latin social dances. And so that's just a lovely way. It like engages your mind as well because you're um, learning new steps. And I find it just a super great break between the workday and, and all the worries of that and then you just kind of concentrating on on learning routines and and you come out very refreshed and and it's a lovely kind of different thing with with learning different movements and um flexibility and balance and stretching so yeah yeah for sure mm, i love i love salsa dancing merengue cumbia tango i did for a little bit so i 100 agree with you it's so fun um so I'm I'm curious. Before we started to record, you were you were mentioning that your day is very busy. You're working on, um, and you may or may not be able to speak about this. So stop me if you can't. Um, we could always edit that out. <laughs> but I'm curious about what because you're I know heavily involved in um, a lot of big healthcare, not healthcare. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but health projects for the public. And I'm curious what you see for the future of health. In terms of, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, do you see a movement away from fad diets? Do you see a movement towards uh, a more quote unquote healthy approach to um, food and less of a war on food and more of an embracing of, it seems to me like things happen in, in cycles in, in our culture, a movement back towards more movement because like you mentioned in the book, in the 70s, the rise of the TV directly seems to correlate with everyone having a TV in home and us just being kind of glued to our devices. And now there's computers and our phones. So we're still kind of glued to our devices all the time. What do you see for the future of, of our society in terms of health? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were bringing me in a positive direction, but I, I have to say I'm a little um, glum on the outlook. And for a couple of reasons, if it, it feels like the whole idea of um, diet as the way to, um, to manage your health has, has only become stronger. It seems like a there's even an, this increased drumbeat about um, sugar and so forth. And another sort of discouraging trend, um, which is something I've done some research on outside of this particular book, is the medicalization of obesity. And um, that's been a long process. And I personally believe that kind of been something that has been instigated and promoted by special interests, um, aka the pharmaceutical industry, and they are now finally getting um, their goal when they first started out in the 1990s, which is that now um, uh, government uh, insurance programs and uh, private insurance programs are approving uh, 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 pharmaceutical treatment of obesity. So rather than people, you know, getting healthy, they're going and they're getting pills to lose weight while they're still not addressing it or still not embracing the most important um, source of health, which is 
physical activity. So I, I see that. And again, as you mentioned with our devices, people are, you know, I kind of chronicle, we're actually now like in the, somehow can't even figure out how we could be um, fit everything we have into the day with the time we're spending on our devices. And I don't see that trend ending anytime soon. Yeah, that is kind of glum, isn't it? <laughs> I I'm trying to figure out how to, to to end this on a positive note, but perhaps the, the call to action here is that it's really important to consider how much time you're sitting mm. um, and to, like you said, the call to action is to prioritize moving your body. And that's what we're made to do. Our bodies are made to move. I think about, <laughs> I'm taking it one step further. I'm thinking about, I love to backpack and I love to be outside in nature and how our bodies are made. People often ask me, this seems like a topic that comes up when I talk about going backpacking. You have to poop outside in the wilderness. You have to pee outside in the wilderness. There's not a bathroom ready for you. So I think about how our bodies are meant to like that deep squat is Mm -hmm. really good for your organs in terms of stimulating digestion and making elimination of waste so much easier on your organs because you're squatting that deep and you're compressing the ascending and descending colon when you do that. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen on a toilet. So what did we do? We invented the squatty potty, which I have at home and I love it, but I still prefer my nature poops. (laughs) So where was I going with that? I guess that's the, to me, it's like, let's use our bodies for what they're intended for. Yeah. And I, I actually do have a positive message that I can throw in there, which is um, I, I a, a couple months ago, I had a chat with um, three leaders from um, Latinas Run. And, and what we ended up talking about was how important we felt um, being a role model for our children and our elders was Mm -hmm. in making um, exercise a really important component of our day. And we were talked about how proud we were that all of our uh, daughters, and I think there was one son in the group, we mostly had daughters were, you know, following our footsteps by some of them were running and some of them and all of them were athletes. And so I think um, we can, uh, uh, you know, trying to, shift the tide, especially, you know, think about the impact you have on others, um, you know, to, to help inspire you and motivate you to um, be physically active every day, but especially on your kids. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. That's perfect. Inspirational, happy note to end on. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add to that, Anastasia? And I do want to ask uh, a logistical, an important logistical question, which is where people can go to um, find your books, your body of works, you know, follow you, connect with you. Um, yeah, I have. Um, I. I'm not super good at uh, social media, but there, I have a LinkedIn account. I have um, an Instagram account and, and Twitter. Um, and those are, let's see, my Twitter is at Combat Kitchen. That was my previous book. My Instagram is Anastasia M-D-E-S. And my, um, my LinkedIn is my name. Um, you can also, I have my email around. If anyone wants to connect, you can reach out that way. I love to hear from people. Um, so, you know, please, if anyone is listening, has a question, get in contact with me. I'd love that. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I 
really appreciate your time and I will let you go, but this has been such a fun conversation for me. And I do really appreciate this body of work, eat like a pig, run like a horse. It's, it's like I said, very profound, very heavily researched, but also such a joy to read because of all the fun stories that you weave throughout. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tessa, for having me. Have a great day. You too. Well, everyone, that concludes another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new, maybe remembered something old, maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life. My, <laughs> you can hear my dog in the background. She's doing a little happy dance. Um, so Daisy enjoyed it. Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together without them. I wouldn't, you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my, um, engineer, consistency media don't know what i would do without you thank you thank you thank you and the amazing creation and artistic musical genius drew lovern thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio so unique to the show only place you're ever going to hear it is right here Thanks, you guys. You make my world go round. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up, and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet, to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. Take care.